Father, thank you that we can be still and know that you are God. And and thank you that that you're a God who reveals yourself to us, that you help us to to understand and grasp what your character is like, that, that you want for us to come to know you as our friend and our all-powerful God. Father, I pray that you'd speak to us through the power of your word, that we would hear your voice speaking. May our hearts be open to your Holy Spirit, and may we walk out of here transformed to live different lives because of what we hear you saying to us. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. I want you to imagine that you're driving down the road. You've driven down that road many times before. You're driving 55 when all of a sudden you see the lights behind you. Oh no, what happened? The, the officer pulls you over and as you pull over, you think to myself, yourself, I, I was driving 55, what, what's going on? And the officer comes up to the window. He says, a driver's license and registration, please. Officer, um, what was I doing wrong? Well, you're speeding. Well, well, officer, I've lived here for a long time, and I know that the speed limit is 55. Oh, do you see that sign over there? Yeah. Well, we changed the speed limit yesterday. It's 45 now. Driver's license and registration, please. So, a week or so later, you're driving down the road, and you've learned your lesson. You're driving 45 now. And an officer pulls up behind you. Lights are on. Pulls you over. You think, oh, what happened now? Say, uh, officer, I was driving 45. I know that I was doing the right thing. What, what's going on, officer? Oh, you see that sign over there? Uh, yeah. It says 65. Yeah, but do you see the little, little writing under it? Oh, yeah, it says minimum of 55 miles per hour. You were driving too slowly, sir. What would you feel, how would you react to laws that change that easily? And they were completely, seemingly arbitrary. It wasn't based upon reality. It wasn't based upon your safety. It wasn't based upon anything solid. It was simply at the whims of the government. You probably would be pretty frustrated. You probably wouldn't trust that government. Well, there's something fascinating that takes place in the book of Revelation. But to get the context and understanding for it, let's look at Daniel chapter 7. Go with me to Daniel chapter 7. And here we find the same power that's revealed in Revelation chapter 13. And we're not... Just just a caveat as we start this morning. This is not going to be in-depth enough if you have never had any background of studying the things that we're talking about today. So I ask you to, to come ask me questions, to do further research yourself, to study it out, to ask others questions, because we're going to be flying over this today. But I hope that it gives you a concept about God, an understanding about God that is helpful for your journey with him. So Daniel chapter 7, we find the same beast power uh, that's revealed in in Revelation chapter 13, the sea beast. And if you missed us talking about the sea beast, that's uh, you can find it on our YouTube channel back last fall. We talked about the sea beast of Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 7 and verse 25, it says this, he shall speak pompous words against the Most High. Now, this is the little horn power. This is what Christianity recognizes as being the Antichrist power. What is it that he is doing? 
He's speaking pompous words against the Most High. He is misrepresenting the character of God. He's misrepresenting who God is. Does this make sense so far? We've talked about this a lot, that, that that's what the Antichrist power does. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 makes that really clear, that he will exalt himself as if he is God in the sanctuary of God so that he'll be worshipped as God. We'll think that it's God is what Satan wants for us to think, but it's not really. It's the attributes of Satan and his kingdom rather than the attributes of God. So he shall speak pompous words against the Most High, Now notice what it goes on to say. He shall persecute the saints of the Most High. Persecution was rife throughout the the medieval times, the dark ages, when we found that the Christian church was the perpetrator of the most heinous of persecution. As heretics were burned at the stake, as people were oppressed, if they didn't follow the specific doctrines that were taught, by the general church, what we call the Roman Catholic Church. Now, Jesus warned about this in John chapter 16. He said it this way, These things I have spoken to you, that you shall not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers service to God. There's coming a time when people are actually going to perpetrate persecution in my name. They'll think that they're actually doing it to honor me. They'll think that this is what I'm like, that that when somebody is disobeying me, that how I act towards them is to destroy them, right? So Jesus says, there's going to be people that think they're serving me because obviously this is how God acts. So I'm going to help God out and I'm going to persecute anybody who doesn't believe the way that I believe. And Jesus warned that this is what is coming. And he specifically said, this is why, verse 3, and these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. They, they don't really know who I am. And he goes on later to say, uh, the Father himself loves you in this chapter. The, the problem is they don't recognize that God is a God of infinite love. And so as we find this power speaking pompous words against the Most High, he's, he's speaking out to defame the character of God, and that leads to persecution. And it also leads to a very specific action in order to defame the character of God. Notice as the verse continues, verse 25 continues, and shall intend to change times and law. Now think about it. What does this do to the character of God? We talked about last week how resurrection power, how Jesus was able to rise from the dead is the fact that James chapter 1 tells us that sin produces, do you remember? What does sin produce? Death. Right there, a continuum. Sin has in it the very seeds of death. But we saw in contrast to that that 1 John chapter 3 verses 14 to 16 tells us that he who has passed from death to life will love his brother. So we saw that selfishness is death, but unselfish love, self-sacrificing love, is life. These are the principles of the universe, how God has designed the universe to operate. And this is what we saw God's law is clearly based upon. God is love. Romans chapter 13, verse 10 says, you, you can, the whole law is summed up in this. To love your neighbor as yourself. That's what it all boils down to is love. So 
if it's an arbitrary thing, if something changes, just think about with my little girls. If one day the rule is, hey, uh, you have to, to sit while you're eating your food at the table and you have to, to not speak throughout the meal. And then the next day, I'm, I'm yelling at them because, why aren't you speaking to me? I want you to have a conversation with me at the table. Why won't you talk to me? But then the next day, it moves on to something else. If, if the, the rules are constantly changing, that makes me an arbitrary person who merely wants for them to jump at my whims in order to please me. It's a self-serving thing. Is this making any sense at all? All right, so if the law is about... It, an arbitrary imposition upon us versus how God has designed the universe to operate, then it, it creates God or it helps us to see, it, it makes us think of God as a selfish, arbitrary, vindictive being. And the natural result of that is to enforce penalties or to impose uh, persecution on those who don't believe the way that we do if we think that that's the way that God is. Okay, so, and shall intend to change times and law. So, what is this talking about? What exactly does this look like? Well, let's go back to Revelation chapter 14. This is back in the first angel's message. There's a clear context of what's happening in Revelation chapter 14. The three angels' messages come together. Each one, it says, and the next angel followed, and the next angel followed. So, the first angel, when he comes, he's clearly wanting us to know something. He says, worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of waters. He's wanting for us to worship And where is this quoting from? Do you remember? This is specifically quoting from the fourth commandment. It's a a clear allusion to Exodus chapter 20. And here's the incredible thing. Just think for a moment about the commandments of God. Now, you'll notice that Revelation chapter 14 goes on to say this in verse 12. It says, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. This is at the end of the third angel's message. One message, three different messengers, three angels are coming. And at the end of the, the third angel's message, it says, hey, the patience of the saints is that here are those who keep the commandments of God, which God's law can be summarized as to love your neighbor as yourself, to love God with all of your heart, to love your neighbor as yourself, and the faith of Jesus. But we're going to look at what is sandwiched in the midst of that in just a second. But think about this for a second. Since Revelation 14 and verse 7 says, worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea. It's specifically highlighting one of the commandments. Why would the fourth commandment of all the commandments be highlighted in the first angel's message? Well, how did Jesus summarize the law of God when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And then he said, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So he summarized it as love God and love people. That's what it could all be summarized as. That's what it all hangs upon, he says. Now, when you look at just the Ten Commandment law that was given on Mount Sinai, you can divide it in that that type of fashion. Just think about the first three commandments. Remember, you shall have no other gods before you. You shall make no graven images. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. What type of relationship is that talking about? Is it a relationship with other people? It's talking about our relationship with God, our love for God. And then, 
the last commandments, uh, the last, last, what is it, the last six commandments say, uh, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not uh, bear false witness, you shall not covet. What are those commandments about? It's about our relationship with our horizontal relationships on this planet. It's about our relationships with other people. And right in the middle, the hinge point of the Ten Commandments is the Fourth Commandment. Now, I want to ask you a question. Is the Fourth Commandment talking about our love for God or our love for people? I've tended to put it just in the love for God category, but as I've looked more and more at the Fourth Commandment, I've realized something, that this commandment was designed to enable us to love people. It's, it's a commandment that is designed both for our worship of God, our love for God, and also our love for people. Because what does it say? Remember, obviously it gives us this picture of who God is. Remember our creator, because in seven days he made the, the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. And you should rest, but then what does it go on to say? Then it hinges over and it moves over. It pivots us into this loving our neighbor because it says, you should rest. You get a day off to meditate on me, to allow that to sink in as to who I am in your life. You get this this time period. You were defined by making bricks. And and all you knew was to be uh, oppressed and pushed as slaves in Egypt. But now I'm giving you a day off to remember me as creator and the one who brought you out, the one who's who created you in the beginning, and the one who saved you. And we get that same privilege to worship God, to love God, because we didn't have anything to to do with us coming into existence. And we also don't have the capacity to save ourselves. It is finished in Christ. But the commandment doesn't end there. It says not only are you to have a day off, but your son, your daughter. You can't be like, okay, son, uh, I get a day off today because of my relationship with God, but uh, could you go in the backyard? Could you go out and till the field for me? Could you, your son, your daughter, but not only that, your maidservant, your manservant, your cattle, your donkey, your, your stranger who is within your gates. God is intentionally wanting for us to advocate for the freedom of those around us in this commandment, to intentionally love the people around us. The Sabbath is not just for me. It's to enable me to love the people around me. So here we find that in Revelation chapter 14, verse 7, it says, hey, worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, quoting from the fourth commandment. And then it goes in verse 12 to say, here's the patience of the saints. Here are those that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And sandwiched right in the middle of that, in verse, in verse 9, it says, Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand. Uh, worship is the key idea here of, of attributing value to who God is, recognizing him in all of his beauty for an infinite God of love. And on either side of that, it says, Hey, worship him the fourth commandment, and, and remember to keep, keep the commandments through faith in Jesus, through being inspired by the love that he has for us. But this power will seek to intend to change times and laws. So what exactly is the mark of the beast? That's the question for us today, isn't it? We've been talking about how we're marked. We've been talking about the character that is taking place where we're becoming more and more like the dragon rather than like the lamb. But the sign of 
the uh, seal of God. We saw in Ezekiel chapter 20 and verse 12, it says, sanctify my Sabbaths, that they may be a sign between me and you, that you may know that I'm the Lord who sanctifies you. In Exodus 20, 20, it says, sanctify the Sabbath so that you, they may be a sign to you that you may know that I am the Lord. We saw that sanctification, Paul defines it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, saying that your love is going to abound more and more toward all. It's going to go in every direction, toward those around you, towards your neighbors, towards your enemies, everybody you're going to love. This is what sanctification is going to look like in your life. So the sign of that is, what does Ezekiel say? What is the sign of, of that sanctification? The Sabbath. Because it's this picture that he's our creator, and he's the one who can recreate us with resurrection power to go from death into life, to be able to love again. But this power seeks to intend to change times and laws, to misrepresent God's character by saying that, hey, God... God's law of love, it's not based on love, it's based on selfishness, and so it can be changed. So who is it that changes the law of God? Well, in March 7 of 321 AD, we find the very first time that we have this, a, a, a effort to specifically force anybody to worship in a specific way as far as in Christian worship. March 7 of 321 AD the emperor Constantine said this, let all judges and townspeople and all occupations of trade rest on the venerable day of the sun. Now you see, what's taking place here is the state is stepping in to enforce how worship takes place. And we're going to see as we look at Revelation chapter 13 that this is exactly the picture of what is involved in the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast is not just about a certain day of worship. It's about the character of worship that's taking place and the force that is involved in pushing people to worship in a certain way. Right? So, Great Controversy, page 446, says it this way. It was in behalf of the Sunday that popery, that's talking about the, the uh, Catholic Church in the Dark Ages, first asserted its arrogant claims. And its first resort to the power of the state was to compel the observance of Sunday as the Lord's Day. The, the first time that the, the church is like grasping for the state to help them out, they became, um, the priests, uh, or the people in the church actually became, Constantine said, his priests that he would counsel with. And they began to, to push him to enact Christian laws, to force people into Christianity. Now, I want people to worship. I want people to worship Jesus. But is it possible to force somebody to worship? Is it possible to force somebody to love? You know, it's funny. Um, I won't tell you which daughter, but one of our daughters has kind of gotten this pension at the, at, at the table when we're saying, oh, I love you, and we're, we're talking with each other, and we'll say, I love you. She'll say, I don't love you. Now, there's a lot of times where she's saying, I love you. She'll say uh, so many sweet things. She'll hug you, but every once in a while, she thinks it's funny to say, I don't love you. That's not funny. <laughs> but I'll tell you that I've racked my brain, and I've talked with Lee about this, and I'm trying to figure out what do you do? You take them and spank them and say, no, you do love me. <laughs> I don't think that's going to work, right? The best thing so far we've figured to respond is, well, I love you. 
And we don't say in our household that we don't love somebody. So if you don't want to say you love somebody, just don't say anything at all, all right? Just, 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 let's just be quiet. You can't force somebody to love. That's the reality. And that's what Revelation 13 and 14 are talking about. And if we try to get it as anything else than that, then we're missing the picture of what really is involved in the last day crisis. Revelation chapter 13, verse 15, notice how it, how it describes what will take place. This is talking about the, the image to the beast, okay? So, so here's what you have in the, the, what is that, the fourth century. You have Constantine setting up a Sunday law, and then that is represented as the sea beast in Revelation chapter 13. The image to that is set up by, as we've talked about previously, and if if this sounds outrageous to you, please go back and look at the land beast uh, on, on YouTube or talk to us more about it, study it out for yourself. But the United States of America sets up an image to the beast. And Revelation chapter 13 and verse 15 says it this way, that, and it causes that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Do you see what is taking place here? It's setting up this image and causing a forced worship of the image of the beast. And if you don't worship in this particular way, then you're going to be killed. Force versus love. This is the final conflict. It goes on to say, he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, and free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. And that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name or the beast of the beast or the number of his name. The picture here is uh, that first there's going to be economic sanctions, even though it comes in a different order as we read it in the text. But ultimately that's going to lead to a decree that those who refuse to worship in a particular manner, worshiping the beast is what it says, worshiping the image, will be killed. The, the problem here, the key and crucial problem here is the use of force to restrict liberty as if that were how God acts towards human beings. But instead, God says, hey, I've given you this day of freedom and I'm inviting you. I want to attract you with my love. I, I'm giving you this invitation to accept me as your friend. So what exactly is the mark? Well, I'm actually going to read to you from some Catholic publications, and, and I want to actually tell you that I think that, that they're jumping the gun a little bit here, but this is what they have to say about it. The Faith of Our Fathers, Archbishop James Cardinal Gibbons, uh, this book, The Faith of the Fathers, is kind of to help people convert to Catholicism from Protestantism. It says this, of course, the Catholic Church claims that the change was her act, talking about the change from Sabbath to Sunday, and the act is a mark of her ecclesiastical power and authority in religious matters. So what is, what is the Archbishop saying? This is a mark of our authority that we are able to change from Saturday to Sunday. Does that make sense? No, it doesn't. But anyway, let's keep going. <laughs> right? But the, the key thing is here is talking about this is our mark of authority and power. Now, this is from the Catholic record, September 1, 1923. Sunday is our mark of authority. You want to know why it is that we have authority to make the decrees and, and councils that we do? Just look at Sunday. That's when the Christian world worships. 
The church is above the Bible, and this transference of Sabbath observance is proof of that fact. Or this one. Father Enright, History of the Sabbath, page 802, said, It is the mark of our authority to overrule God's law. Wow, that's a pretty bold claim. Now, this, this obviously isn't just uh, speaking for the entire Catholic Church. These are Catholic authors who are speaking here. Uh, but you can even look in the Catholic Catechism, and, and when you look up what day is the seventh day, or is the Sabbath, they'll say, it, the seventh-day Sabbath was on Saturday, but we transferred the solemnity to Sunday. We made that, that change. And, and you and I have to, have to grapple with, who is God? It, has God uh, enabled his church to change laws? Or is God a God of infinite love who doesn't change gravity, and you and I are still sitting here today, and who also doesn't change his law of love? That that's the reality of how the universe operates. We've got to grapple with that. Then uh, the St. Catherine Catholic Church Sentinel, May 21, 1995. Now this is, this is my favorite as a Seventh-day Adventist pastor, um, just because it's coming from, from, from the source, from a Catholic Sentinel. Watch, watch what they say. Perhaps the boldest thing, that most re- the most revolutionary change the church ever did, happened in the first century. The Holy Day, the Sabbath, was changed from Saturday to Sunday. Not from any directions noted in the scriptures, but from the church's sense of its own power. People who think that the scriptures should be the sole authority should logically become Seventh-day Adventists and keep Saturday holy. I'm glad that he said it rather than me, so that we can tell the world, listen, if you want to follow the Bible, I don't know, maybe you should follow what they have to say. But, but like I said, actually, I believe that they are jumping the gun. They are saying that this is our mark of authority, and yet you and I have the freedom to choose whether or not we worship on Sunday. So the reality is that the mark of the beast has not yet been imposed on this planet. So don't go out of here to tell our Sunday church-keeping friends, or if you worship on Sunday, don't go and tell people that that is the mark of the beast. Because the reality is that what we're seeing here is coercion versus love. Force versus love. And until this becomes a reality, we cannot say that anyone has the mark of the beast. Last Day Events, page 224, sums it up this way. Sunday keeping is not yet the mark of the beast and will not be until the decree goes forth causing men to worship this idol Sabbath. Is that really clear today? I want all Seventh-day Adventists to raise your hand. (laughs) Do you understand? We do not go and tell any Sunday keeper that they have the mark of the beast or that they're going to church by itself on Sunday is the mark of the beast. Is this really clear? I, I want for us to be a church that properly represents Scripture, that properly represents who our God is. What is going to take place in the end, um, a pastor friend of mine used a, a large theological t- term to describe it. He said, there's going to be a grand switcheroo that's going to take place. You see, because whether we worship now on Sunday or whether we worship on Saturday does not define whether we are in the lamb's camp or the beast camp. Just picture it like this. You had Nazis who actually took the American flag. What does the American flag represent? represents the United States of America. It represents freedom. It represents all these things. They took an American flag. 
They'd put on American uniforms and they marched into American camps in order to spy and to, to work espionage to create problems within American ranks. Just because I claim the Seventh-day Sabbath doesn't mean that I'm receiving the seal of God. The seal of God is based upon the character of the Lamb. It's based upon becoming like Jesus. And I can very easily have the sign, I can have the flag, but, but there's coming a day when the pressure is going to become more and more intense, as is described here in Revelation 13. And we are going to gravitate either towards the force that we've been employing in our lives or towards love. Selfishness or unselfishness. And in the end, there's going to be two camps. But there's no guarantee today that just because I understand that the seventh day is the Sabbath, that I'm going to be in the right camp. What I need is to fix my eyes on Jesus today and every day. But you know, this sounds a little bit sensational, doesn't it? It sounds a little bit, thinking of our world today, is it really possible that this type of thing could take place? So, I just wanted to play something for you from uh, the Arizona Senate. This is, um, this is I, I'll get her name for you after the video, actually. But this is March 24 of 2015. In a conversation about gun laws in Arizona, this is what a senator in Arizona had to say. Knives, or you can use whatever. It's the soul that is corrupt. And how we get back to a moral rebirth in this country, I don't know, since we are slowly eroding religion at every opportunity that we have. Uh, probably we should be debating a bill requiring every American to attend a church of their choice on Sunday to see if we can get back to having a moral How many want a moral rebirth in the United States of America? Right? Me too. I want for morality. I think that the the biggest problem that we have is our hearts. But the reality is that morality cannot be forced. And this is just a side comment, but you can see how easily it is for us as Christians with our well-intentioned plans. This is Senator Davis, by the way, in in Arizona. You can see with our well-intentionality to see America have a moral rebirth, And we can say, well, yeah, I want everybody in church. Let's force everybody there. Let's get them all they have to hear about Jesus, and maybe that will change their lives. No, force never changes lives. Just a couple of weeks ago, Senator uh, Smith Hyde from Mississippi in the U.S. Senate said this. She was discussing uh, with Senator Schumer. She's a Republican. She's discussing the uh, Georgia voting laws. And Senator Schumer had said, why is it that on Sundays, Georgia churches, black churches, can't have their voter registrations? They can't help people to get to vote. Why is it that on Sundays, it's against the law to help people be able to vote? So this is what she had to say. Senator Schumer's question was, he was wondering why on Sundays, Georgia would not participate in an electoral process of gathering signatures of registration and things on Sunday. And I would just like to respond to that. Georgia is a southern state just like Mississippi. I cannot speak for Georgia, but I can speak for Mississippi on why we would never do that on a Sunday or hold an election on a Sunday. You know, this is our currency. This is a dollar bill. This says the United States of America in God we trust. Etched in stone in the U.S. Senate chamber is in God we trust. 
When you swore in all of these witnesses, the last thing you said to them in your instructions was, so help you God. In God's word in Exodus 20, 18, it says, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. So that is my response. to a, a little correction. That's actually Exodus chapter 20, verse 8 to 11. But do you see this? Do you see this idea that I resonate with a whole lot of that. How about you? Do you want our United States dollar bill to say, in God we trust? Do you want us to be etched into stone that in God we trust as a nation? I appreciate those things. I want morality in our country. I want us to be a godly Christian country. But the reality is that we cannot force people into morality. That is the direction that the United States eventually will take. And we're seeing this in all directions in our society where force is being used in order to get people to act a certain way. And the gospel is opposed to coercion. Now, right embedded in Revelation chapter 13 is this beautiful little summary of how to escape this persecution. You ready for it? Revelation chapter 13 and verses 9 to 10 says this, If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience of the saints. And here is the faith of the saints. You see, embedded right between the sea beast and the land beast is this picture that that the reality is that force is the problem here and that there will be people who are killing with the sword, who are using force to get morality back into our world. And the reality is that God's people are going to have to be patient during that time. They're going to have to endure during that time to continue to endure in love, in protecting the freedom of those around us to worship as they please. I want for as many people as possible to worship on the seventh-day Sabbath, but I want no laws to cause people to be here in our church on Sabbath. I want for people to accept the Ten Commandments, but I don't want for people to be forced because they'll never fall in love with Jesus if it's by force. And I need to recognize that that I need to also appreciate the fact that people need the freedom to worship on Sunday. People need the freedom to worship in their mosque. People need their freedom to worship in their synagogue. I can try to convince them that God is not like it's pictured in their religion, but I don't want to force them out of that religion. They may be an atheist, and I may disagree with them, but what I need to do is paint a more beautiful picture of God, not to try to force them to trust in God, because trust cannot be forced. Jesus knew that better than any of us. You know, it's fascinating as you read the story about Jesus, and when Peter confesses Christ, now this is This is a whole sideline that we're not going to go into much detail about. But you know why the Catholic Church tends to say that, hey, we have the authority to make the changes that we do. is because Christ said to Peter, on this rock, I'm going to found my church. That was based upon the declaration that Peter said that you are the Christ. You are the Son of God. So right after that is where we get the idea that that clearly Peter wasn't the perfect uh, delineator of what doctrine should look like because immediately after that, Jesus says, I'm going to have to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be accused and falsely betrayed and I'm going to die on a cross. And Peter says, Lord, this will never happen to you. Stop saying this. And he pulls Jesus aside to tell him this. 
And Jesus looks at Peter, but he looks past Peter and he says, Satan, get behind me. You're thinking satanic thoughts. You're thinking you're trying to talk me out of laying down my life, but this is what love is like. In John chapter 15, Jesus said, no greater command. I give you this commandment, lay down your lives for one another. Love one another. Well, the night before Jesus goes to the cross, in the upper room, he's there with Peter and he's letting the disciples know that somebody's going to betray him. And Peter says, no, no, no. I will never betray you. I would go to death for you. What did Peter really mean? So Jesus, if you're going to defeat the Romans, if you're going to be the Messiah, if you're going to go along with my political understanding of what the world needs to look like, I would willingly die for you. I would die to, to make sure that you sit on that throne. But that night, when... And, and, and he started to fulfill that promise, right? When, when the mob comes, he comes out swinging with his sword and he swings at Malchus and Malchus ducks and he doesn't take off his head, just takes off his ear and instantly Jesus reaches forward and places his hand on it and heals his ear. And then notice what Jesus says. Matthew 26, verse 52. And this is where John is drawing from in Revelation chapter 13. He said, but Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. That's not what my kingdom is like, Peter. Those who kill by the sword will be killed by the sword. This is not how power is established. This is mind-blowing to any person throughout civilization, especially up until this time. How anybody ruled and sat on a throne, how anybody had authority was the fact that they had the biggest army, they were the strongest, they had the best weapons. You got power through killing other people. But Jesus says, no, no, no. I'm setting up a different kingdom. I'm going to serve, and I'm going to love, and I'm going to lay down my life. And Paul has the audacity to say, because of that, in Philippians 2, he's going to be exalted. He was exalted to the right hand of the Father. Well, then Jesus is taken before Pilate, the Roman ruler, and and he's accused of saying that he's a king, and Pilate's like, are you a king? If you're a king, then then why is this happening to you? Look at Jesus' response. John 18, verse 36. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now, my kingdom is not from here. My kingdom isn't about fighting. My kingdom isn't about force. My kingdom is about love. And any other possible way of getting people to worship is not in accordance with Christ's kingdom. And so Pilate, what does he do to try to release Jesus? He likes Jesus. He says he's innocent. I can see that he's, he's innocent. And they keep trying to condemn him. So finally he gets the bright idea. I know what I'll do. And he pulls out Barabbas. Now Barabbas was in prison for insurrection. He was in prison for trying to overthrow the Romans. And he was in prison for murder because he'd taken insurrection to the place of murdering people. He had a large following. And he's there, and Jesus is also placed there. And and Pilate thinks that people will obviously see that they'd rather have Jesus than this murderer. But what did the crowd choose? They chose Barabbas. What will you and I choose? Will we choose Jesus? Or will we choose or force and coercion? Will we choose unselfishness or will we choose selfless 
or selfishness. Will we choose coercion or will we choose love? This is Alfred Vinderbilt. Alfred, from all appearances, had it all together. Alfred uh, was on a, actually a, 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 a trip with friends. He was in a wealthy family, an extremely wealthy family. He was on a trip with friends traveling around the world when he found out that his dad dies. And he went home and he discovers from his dad's will that he is the main beneficiary of his dad's wealthy business and estate. Estimated in value in today's money to be $150 billion. Alfred Vinderbilt was on the top of the world. A famous man. Uh, People were amazed at how much money he had. Well... He went on a trip, and he got on the Lusitana uh, during, I believe this is World War I. And as he was on this ship, they thought that they were safe because it was a passenger boat. But the Germans weren't willing to, to abide by those rules, and the German U, U-boat sent a torpedo to the Lusitana. And as the Lusitana began to sink, there were 1,300 people on board. I believe it, it was at least 1,300 people. And, and the good news for Alfred was that, that Alfred was in first class because he had a lot of money. In fact, he was the most wealthy person on that boat. He was the most famous person on that boat. So he had clout of everybody on that ship, 1,300 people. Well, they didn't have enough life vests for everybody. So, of course, who gets the life, life vest first? The people in first class. So they bring Alfred Vanderbilt his life vest and he, he puts on his life vest. And then he's going around and he notices that those who aren't in first class, they don't all have life vests. And so he, he's looking around and he, he promises this woman she's holding a baby in her arms. And as he sees that baby, he says, I'll get you a life vest. I'll be right back. Now, mind you, this ship sang, sank within 18 minutes. This is, he's running frantically as the ship is beginning to go under, looking for a life vest, and he looks everywhere. He realizes something. There's no more life vests on the boat, and this mother is holding a baby in her arms. What do you do in that moment? It's you or a mother and her baby. And the newspaper recorded that Alfred went to that woman. He took the life vest off. She couldn't even take it and tie it on herself, but he took it and he put the life vest on her and he tied it around her. And it said, even though Alfred did not know how to swim. Alfred Vinderbilt died that night. But as we learned, I think he'd actually passed from death to life. Because when we love, like Jesus loved. When we lay down our life for others, we have actually entered into life. So friends, what this is really about, it's about our character. As we walk out of here, realize that this is not about explaining right day versus wrong day as much as it is about living out the character of Jesus Christ in our lives. It's about laying down our lives. And that might mean turning off the TV so that you can Go and call a friend and pray with them. That might mean stopping by your neighbor's house, uh, like we just heard the story about when you could have a lot of other things you could do at your own house. 
That might mean that when your kids come home that you sit down to listen to them in all of their troubles and trials when you've got to get to work and you've got to do your things. It might mean stopping for that person that is despicable to you and getting to know them and sharing out of your own resources that you could use for your own good to benefit their lives and to see how you can help them out of their trouble. We're called to lay down our lives for others. And in this, we will be sealed with the character of God. In closing, we're going to listen to this song, Here I Am to Worship. We're called to worship. And as you listen to this song, it describes how the the omnipotent God of the universe, who was on the throne, willingly became poor for your sakes. Just think about the life that he's calling you to live in his strength. Let's pray. God, we want to worship you in spirit and in truth. We want to come to recognize how truly lovely you are. That you, the the king who is highly exalted, came to this planet and willingly went to the cross for us. Lord, help it to sink in more deeply that you call us to lay down our lives for those around us. Lord, show us practical ways in which we can Cut out things in our own life to help others. But Lord, help us to know that we can't do it in our own strength, but only through the power of your Spirit, who is the resurrection and the life for us today. Lord, please pour out your Spirit on us. Seal us. With your seal, we want to be a part of those who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Please pour out your Spirit on us this week as we go out to live lives of worship. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.